joke on television about the form that says applaud now. Um, <laughs> it's wonderful to be here. Tremendous joy and delight, I'm sure, for all of us. And simply to walk around uh, the site, to walk around the hotel, uh, the beaches, etc., and see so many dear friends sharing our lives together. Uh, it makes you wonder why we stayed in Brighton so long. Um, uh, and... Uh, Although we all miss the shingle, don't we? Um, it's, it's a real joy to, to be here. I, I'd like to pray, and we'll get into the Word of God together. Father, we thank you so much for the sheer joy of being together. We thank you so much for our diverse backgrounds and also callings. We thank you for these dear friends we've shared here tonight, our hero friends. We thank you, Lord, that many are really on the cutting edge of your advancing kingdom. We thank you for all that we've learned thus far. And Holy Spirit, we do welcome you here. We do pray that you will come and be our teacher. Come and speak into our hearts. Come and arrest our attention. Come and win us for yourself. Be glorified, Lord, as we open your word together. We do pray. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is obviously an important stage in our development in terms of uh, forming and releasing new teams all over the world. And sometimes we hear different phrases uh, such as word and spirit, uh, even reformed and charismatic, these things combined. But really, the thing that's uppermost in my thoughts is this word apostolic. We want to rejoice in being a sent, commissioned people and releasing new teams that are aware of having been sent. And as I was praying over the last few months, really, about this time together and asking God, what would he have me speak on? I want to speak really on one phrase. It's hardly worth turning up. It's one very famous and well-known to you all. And it's based on John chapter 20, where he just said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. As the Father sent me, so send I you. We know that that word apostolic is a word that means sent. You're on a mission, you're commissioned to go. I'm, I'm not totally impressed with uh, Peter Wagner's books about churchquake and the apostolic reformation, but he does say this, as he observes, and I would say C. Peter Wagner is an observer, he's a commentator, as when he wrote the Pentecostals are coming in South America, he observed what's happening. He now would say, but if you look at the church around the globe, statistically, where the major advances are is where God is raising up apostolic figures, teams, churches, and they're on the move. And certainly some of us had the privilege of being with Bob when he gathered a number of apostolic team leaders and to meet people like Eddie Leo from Indonesia with his tens of thousands as uh, they're on apostolic mission. And... Uh, to uh, have fellowship with these dear brothers was a huge privilege, and Dion Robert from Abidjan. I mean, you're talking tens of thousands experiencing advance in the kingdom. So we would love to get uh, out of our league into their league. We'd love to find God breathing his life upon us and teaching us what it means to be sent. 
And as I looked at that verse and thought, as the Father sent me, so send I you, I began to look at it and work at it and think about it and think of some of the parallels, if you like, between Jesus being sent and our being sent. And I thought of simple things like being commissioned, uh, being dependent, being empowered. We have these things in common with Jesus and we can say, yeah, as he was sent, so we are sent. Yeah, there are some similarities. But as I was pondering that and thinking on that, uh, nothing was really much exploding in my spirit until I stopped for a while and thought, wait a minute. As the Father sent the Son, as the Father sent the Son, that's the biggest event in world history. It's not like some little deal. Yeah, he sent him, he sends us. It's, this, is, this, is the big, this is the biggest event in world history, the incarnation. It's the Creator stepping into creation. It's God becoming flesh and living among us. It's unprecedented, it's unrepeatable. God himself coming in human form. And so this is a phenomenal comparison. The sending of the Son. The life, John says, was manifested and we beheld his glory. Hebrews says he's the exact representation of the Father. He's the radiance of the Father's glory. God coming to us where we are. He said, he that's seen me has seen the Father. How can we compare? How can we, how can we take, as the Father sent me, so send I you? As we really ponder the huge implications of God sending his beloved Son into this world. Many men in the Old Testament had been fortified by God saying to him, I send you. Moses was reluctant to go, and God said to him, look, I send you. Gideon was full of fear and questions. And God said, Behold, I send you. And Jeremiah, similarly. And, and having this commission, having this awareness, I send you. I, Jehovah God, send you. Obviously, huge power, huge confidence, uh, set people free from their inhibitions, their reluctance, just to hear God say, I'm sending you. Just changed everything. Gave them huge strength. But these were like John the Baptist. There was a man called John, sent from God. Then it says, but he was not the light. Another was coming who was the light. He was a man sent from God. Jesus said, as the Father sent me. There's something sublime and magnificent and wonderful about the sending of the Son. He came and said, I am the light of the world. And then phenomenally said to his disciples, now you are the light of the world. This is ascending of another category. This is an amazing thing that God has said. He says to his church, now you, you are the light of the world, even as I have been. So you now take on this baton in a phenomenal way. So I just want to look first of all at how was it, how was it that Jesus came? Well, the breathtaking reality we read about in Philippians 2, that though he existed in the form of God, he didn't grasp equality with God. He was co-equal with the Father. He is the creator. He is to be worshipped. He is very God and humbled himself and became obedient. This is God becoming obedient. This is God who's worshipped by myriads, who created millions and millions of stars. He humbled himself and took on human form. And having taken on human form, 
he humbled himself and became obedient even unto death. I love the song we were singing earlier. This is Jesus in his glory, King of heaven, dying for me. The enormity of his coming, the enormity of his taking on human flesh. He was obedient even to death on the cross. He showed passionate commitment to the Father's intention. He, he said, I've come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I just want to make it my goal to please him. It was absolutely locked into this desire to please the Father, though himself God, yet he submitted himself completely to the Father's will. Had no alternative plans, no other intention. When it comes to the cross, comes that, uh, comes that time of prayer, maybe withdrawing to Gethsemane to see an open heaven, and instead sees the pit of hell opening up before him and prays, what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose came I to this hour. Glorify your name. Jesus so consistent, so clear, so absolutely taken up with the Father's will. He demonstrated complete dependency on the Father. Some said no one spoke ever like this man. He speaks with authority. Not like the scribes. And, but he said, I only say what the Father tells me. I only speak what I'm directed to say. I don't have independent plans. I don't have alternative ideas. I'm only saying what I'm being told to say. I'm only fulfilling what the Father wants. And then as the perfect man, we see him constantly in prayer. We see him seeking his Father. It says, great crowds gathered. But he's not caught up in the euphoria. He doesn't allow their excitement about him to touch him, but it says great crowds gathered, but he withdrew to pray. Before he chooses the twelve, he prays all night. That always fills me with wonder. This is God in the flesh, he's praying all night before he chooses the twelve. We see him praying before the next day. He says he's praying, he's praying alone. Then the next day he says to the apostles, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, you're the Christ. So he's all the time walking in this fellowship with the Father, drawing on the Father, help, seeking the Father's help. You see, in Mark's Gospel, he withdrew to pray. He prayed, he comes back to the disciples and said, we must move on now. It's like, I, I just keep going back for instruction, keep being told what to do. He's in complete dependence on the Father. And here he's saying to us, as the Father sent me, so send I you. These are things that are gloriously distinctive. But one further distinctive is this. Uniquely, like no other Old Testament figure, he came to inaugurate a kingdom. He came to establish the reign of God. He came bringing in the kingdom of God. All previous voices sent men would say a kingdom is coming, but only Jesus can say today. Today. This scripture is fulfilled. Now, I've arrived on the scene. The kingdom's at hand. It's here. It's touchable. It's in your midst. I've come bringing the very presence of God. I've come bringing the rule and government of God. I've been fascinating uh, recently uh, reading in Tom Wright's book, uh, When God Became King. It's a fascinating book. Very helpful book. I commend it to you. And he says that in the creeds, for generations we've been reciting the creed, that, uh, that Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, 
suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And he really challenges the simplicity of that and says, well, this is an amazing thing. We say this, I say we do. Uh, more formal, maybe, Church of England friends say the creed week by week. And this is how they summarize the coming of Jesus. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. We raised up and so on. And at this point, well, wait a minute, born of and crucified. What about what? Did anything happen in between? And he says, we, we have tended to so miss this. And not only is that true of the creeds, which of course predate the whole Reformation, because they were written at a time when the person of Christ is in debate. Was he truly God? Was he truly flesh? Uh, what was happening in the incarnation and, and so on? And so it, it's the birth and the death and, uh, and so on. But not really making any reference to when he came on the scene, he said, the Spirit of the Lord's upon me. He said, the kingdom of God is amongst you. He said, I've come to bring the promised kingdom. He, he made amazing statements. If I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, the kingdom of God is among you. He came establishing the rule and government of God, the long-awaited promise that God would send his son, that he would bring his presence amongst us through a son who he would appoint, a Messiah that would come. And, and there's a sense in which, and we as evangelicals, even perhaps as those sons of the Reformation, we still quickly rush on to the epistles, we rush on to justification by faith, we, we rush on to explain how justification works. We don't often declare the kingdom of God that Jesus has arrived. He's the Son of God. The kingdom has been established. It's been inaugurated. The King has come. And it's not been part of our message in as much as it should have been. But here we find that Jesus, when he came on the scene, is making this kind of statement straight away. The kingdom of God is among you. It's demonstrated by all kinds of signs and wonders and demonstrations of power, even calling the dead back to life, cleansing the leper, healing the sick, bringing salvation. He has inaugurated a wonderful kingdom. He is son of God with power. He's the enthroned one. He is the one that God has appointed. And so when we hear, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you, we're talking about something awesome and breathtaking, the breakout of the rule of God. Not simply like Moses was sent from God or Gideon was sent from God, or John the Baptist was sent from God. We're talking about the announcement of the arrival of the king. And as Jesus came himself declaring the king is here, so we are sent with a similar message. The king is amongst us. The king is here. The government of God has started. And so we find Jesus commissioning the disciples. He's going to send them into the work that God has for them. And it's fascinating to see how he says, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. If that booms a bit too high, maybe we can play it down a bit. All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. And he said to his disciples, now go. Heal every kind of disease. Cast out unclean spirits. Heal every kind of sickness. Preach the kingdom of heaven is ha at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. And then he said this, I send you out 
as sheep among wolves. In fact, in Luke's account, it says lambs. I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. All authority is given to me. All power is mine. I send you as lambs among wolves. Now, wolves hardly sound like candidates for conversion. And uh, lambs are strange missionaries to send to them. But that's what Jesus said. I send you as sheep or lambs among wolves. Behold, he says. Behold. A word that often gets dropped from modern translations, but it means look at this. Don't miss it. Look, I send you as sheep to wolves. Wolves don't look ripe for conversion. Lambs look unexpected missionaries. Leon Morris says, the expression leaves no doubt that there's serious trouble ahead. <laughs> Stephen and James are swallowed up almost immediately. I send you as sheep to wolves. As the Father sent me, so I send you. He was the ultimate lamb sent to wolves. We are sent as he was sent. All authority, but hey, lambs sent to wolves. Jesus came meek and lowly of heart. The Romans imposed their authority on the known world through the terror of the cross. They came into city after city, nation after nation, crucified thousands. The terror of the cross. Jesus comes introducing another kind of kingdom by another kind of servant, sending us as sheep in the midst of wolves, learning to win amazing battles by our willingness, as was so true in the early church, of people laying down their lives. That was one of the tremendous victories, one of the extraordinary things that happened, that men and women laid down their lives for the sake of this king. They went as sheep among wolves. They came suffering in the name of Jesus, meek and lowly of heart. And Paul says in Romans 8, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We, are, we consider ourselves as sheep to be slaughtered. That was the expectation. That was his approach. That was his apostolic commission. If we read in 2 Corinthians 6, you'll see a load of things that he says about himself which show himself to be vulnerable, one who is suffering. And so the aspect of apostolic ministry is not just shining platforms, it's not just glorious uh, headlines and floodlights and big meetings. No, it's lambs sent to wolves. That's as we go on world mission, the note that the Bible strikes, I send you as lambs to wolves. You might say, well, what weapons do we have? How are we going to face this? How do, how do sheep go into battle? And Jesus says, well, go and be as wise as serpents. Go and be wise. I'm sending you very vulnerably. You don't have a lot of power. But go and be as wise as serpents. And wisdom's a big Bible theme. The Bible says this, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we're going out 
sharing another kind of wisdom with the world. A wisdom that expresses a, a true fear of God. It's an alternative wisdom. It's another wisdom. And it's a wisdom that will often be manifestly different to those around us. Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he that hears these words of mine and does them, and does them, is the wise man. He's a wise man. He's not a fool. He's doing what I say. He's taking his values from what I would say. God says this, I will destroy the wisdom of the world. We're going out with another wisdom. This is our weaponry. We go with another wisdom that comes down from heaven. We go with an alternative value system. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve were ensnared, we read this, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God. And Eve saw the tree was desirable to make one wise. But it didn't make men wise. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. We go out with another wisdom. We go out with another way of thinking. We go out with another value system. We go with what God has said is true, is true. We go with the revelation that he has made. We find that even Jesus, when he's confronting Satan or being confronted by him in the wilderness, doesn't have some smart Alec answer. His reply is, it is written. Taken from Deuteronomy, he's coming with a wisdom that he's happy as the Son of God to bow to to put himself under. Although he is very God, he comes with a wisdom that God has spoken in the past. He has respect for what has been said in the past. He doesn't come thinking, well, I am God, I can act independently. He submits himself to another wisdom that's come down out of heaven that is foreign to the wisdom that's all around. And the wisdom of the nations is ignorance in God's sight. And God's sending us out, telling to us to be wise in obeying him, putting first his purpose, not to be independent, not to come up with our own bright answers, a wisdom that comes from God. It says about Stephen, they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. But they killed him. But Jim Elliot says he's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. There's another wisdom coming down from heaven. There's another wisdom by which we live. It may cost us everything. It may cost, as we go on and on into more and more nations, lives that are being laid down. As a sense in which, without the ultimate laying down of life, we're already hearing testimonies here tonight of lives that are being laid down, lives that are making Jesus make the choices. We're not expressing our preferences. We're not saying, well, I would prefer this. This would be safer. This would be easier. This would be a better way of living. This would look after me easier. Be easier for me to my, raise my children here. No, we are submitting to another wisdom. And the wisdom from the Bible isn't just intellectualism. It's not all the books I've read. The wisdom from the Bible is a lifestyle of saying to God, you know best. It's a wisdom that says, I'm going to trust him. It's the wisdom that lets Gideon take 300 guys into battle. It's the wisdom that Joshua can march with a band around a wall for seven days and win a great battle. It's another kind of wisdom that listens to God. It's a wisdom that obeys him. It's a wisdom that sheep can use among wolves. 
It's a wisdom that opens doors you'd never dream would be open because it's somehow submitted to the God who can make it all happen. It's not us being smart. It's not us using uh, our own tactics, our own way through. It's a lifestyle that's saying, God, what do you want? What are you looking for? It's a wisdom that's obedient. He that hears these things and does them is a wise man. In things small and great, we're letting his wisdom prevail. It's letting his understanding break through and have absolute authority in our lives. The wisdom that David had when he went out against Goliath that brought in the kingdom. He went out like a lamb against a wolf and took him out. Because he was living from a wisdom, I come in the name of the Lord. And beloved, God wants church that is in touch with this God. Not just learning clever ways to make things happen, but a people that are really genuinely obeying him, pleasing him, putting him first, leaning heavily into him and believing he is enough for us. That he can open up the unopenable. That he can open the Red Sea. He can open the River Jordan. He can knock down Jericho walls. He has a wisdom that will bring us through. And that, that we are going to break out on a world that has no wisdom at all, according to the Bible. The Bible tells us that uh, in Ephesians 4, it says, the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart. All these phrases are telling us the sad state of a world without God. They're darkened in understanding. They're excluded from the life of God. Satan tempted Adam and Eve said, eat this, you, you will have wisdom. And actually what happened was they got excluded from the life of God and as a result, they had no wisdom at all. They became ignorant. The hardness of their heart, they having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for every practice of impurity with greediness. So the Bible's saying, no, 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 there is an ignorance that needs opening up. So there's a wisdom that we need to have from God. Not only that wisdom that submits to truth and continually seeking him, but I'm fascinated to see when you see men like Joseph and Daniel living in what we might call secular world and having a wisdom that can unlock things. People who have a, an insight, a revelation, a, an insight from God. So Joseph is promoted from prison to become in charge of a nation. Because yeah, he has another knowledge, he has another wisdom he's able to tell. And Daniel, similarly, he comes into a secular situation and he has another wisdom. And so here we go, yes, as sheep among wolves, we see Joseph really, he's vulnerable, he's imprisoned. We see Daniel, he's vulnerable, but he can, he can draw on another wisdom. And beloved, that is so important for us, that we are drawing on God, that we are as wise as serpents, that we receive God's revelation, God's wisdom, God's insight, because that's how Jesus sends us out. Vulnerable, but with a tool of insight that God himself gives. And then the second weapon, it says, innocent as doves. Innocence is a powerful weapon, a rare, rare weapon. We know that Jesus was innocent. Judas said, I have betrayed innocent blood. The centurion said, this man was innocent. 
The Bible says he was holy, innocent, undefiled. This innocent one, this, this holy thing that was born of God. Innocent from beginning to end. Utterly, utterly innocent. And by God's mercy and grace, we have an imputed innocence. God gives us his innocence. He is our righteousness. All his beautiful purity is imputed to our account. But God not only wants us to have an imputed innocence, but he wants to shape us and change us until we, like the Apostle Paul, could stand before authorities and say, I have served God with a good conscience all my life. That's powerful. When Stephen has the stones falling upon him, his face is like the face of an angel. It's saying there's something about these guys that is so pure and innocent. God is calling us to live a life of innocence, to be shaped by his disciplines, to bring pleasure to him, innocent by the mercy of God. I remember once when we were talking to a brother who'd challenged a man actually from the US and he was traveling around as a well-known speaker, a platform guy, a very eloquent platform skill. But there was trouble because, well, he was dealing somewhat shamefully with the pastor's daughter in the house that he was in. And he'd been in a previous town where there was some trouble with the secretary he'd been with. And when they challenged him, he said, well, hey, what are you doing? His reply was, well, God knows we need a bit of tender loving care when we're away on the road. And so he, there was no innocence about him. And God is saying, I'm looking for a people who will be innocent. Does that attract us? Are we attracted by innocence? When you think of Jesus was innocent, he's calling us to be innocent, to stand innocent before him, to be pure and holy. And it's so tragic when we hear, as we do, more and more of sad stories. It's almost interesting at the moment in the UK we've been actually had it thrust in our face lately of a very well-known figure, Sir Jimmy Savile, who was honoured for decades for his charity work. He was knighted, he was honoured by the Pope. He, and now suddenly our papers are full every day that for decades behind the scenes he was far from innocent. And our newspapers every day now cover, uncovering more and more things that he did. You think, well, on the outside, he looked like a very noble guy raising so much money for charity and so on, but underneath, actually not innocent at all. And then we hear about Lance Armstrong and uh, how he could keep on winning the uh, Tour de France, how he battled with ca cancer, came through, think, wow, what a great hero. And now it seems to be universal. He said, no, actually, he's probably one of the biggest cheats there's ever been. Bullied his team into cheating. You think, wow, that's terrible. And then in England, there's been a shameful thing where scores of people died at a soccer stadium and now it's coming to light that the police bullied people into saying, no, it was this happened and this happened and now, oh, wait a minute, they weren't innocent at all. It's an incredible thing that it's almost in the last few weeks our nation again and again has been allowed to see something. Then the curtain's taken away and say, look, underneath, it wasn't innocent. 
And the Lord's looking for people who use the weaponry, although they are lambs, although they are sheep and they're going to wolves, what is our weapon of war? What do we do? How do we, how do we conduct such a battle when the odds are so great against us? What, what weapons have you got, Lord? Be wise. Be innocent. That's what God's looking for. That's, that's, that's what he's appealing for. He said, bring my wisdom. Understand the world is ignorant. It's, it's looking for answers, but it's ignorant. Draw from my wisdom. In your home, the way you relate as husband and wife, you say, well, I'm not sure I believe that anymore because there's all sorts of modern thinking. No, the modern thinking is coming from this world that is without God and doesn't have understanding. So all kinds of worldview comes up, but the wise man will say, well, what has God said? How does God want me to run my home? How does God want me to live in relationship with my wife? How does God want me to raise my children? How does God want me? Does he want me to cheat? Does he want me to uh, play tricks? And sadly, even high-profile Christian activity can be riddled with all kinds of subterfuge. And God is looking for us, dear brothers and sisters, as we go on on mission, international mission, by his grace. Say, no, Lord God, I want to stay drawing from your wisdom. Shall we do that? Shall we say, Lord, I want your wisdom. I don't, I don't want other wisdom. We're so vulnerable out there. We say, no, I want to walk with you, Lord, and draw upon your phenomenal grace and your wisdom that could do extraordinary things, open phenomenal doors. And it's a wisdom that's, it's, all, it's kind of subtle wisdom. And we've been hearing from Bob some of the doors that God has opened to him, just breathtaking doors. How did that happen? Well, there's a listening there's a drawing upon God. There's, a, there's, there's cunning as serpents. It's wise as. Discerning as. Learning to go God's way. Learning, we're not to act independently. Not to just try this, do that. Well, that's the system. Learn the book. No, there's a, there's a, a learning. Jesus was magnificent, wasn't he? In the way they tried to trick him with his words. They tried to trap him. But there was that continual listening for the Father as they threw the girl, caught in the act of adultery at his feet, he's just kind of writing in the sand, it's kind of, there's a waiting, there's a humble, unflappable wisdom from heaven that led him through. He's saying, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you, he came as a lamb, the ultimate lamb, constantly surrounded by wolves, in the end actually yielding his life up to them, totally triumphant, because in the end he presented a wise and innocent offering, the complete triumph, the complete victory. And he's inviting us to put the values, the eternal values that shaped his decision-making into our lives. Unmixed is what the word innocent means. Unmixed is a word that would be used about wine. Unmixed, pure, innocent. Not yielding to other influences. Sometimes we can be more concerned with how is my ministry going, how am I being regarded, am I shining, am I not? But say, no, Lord, I just want to please you. I just want your affirmation. I want This is for you, Lord. It's, it's for your pleasure. It's for your joy. So we want to say, Lord, help me to be innocent before you. It's a terrible thing when lack of innocence is uncovered, the sense of shame. And God's saying, come on, I want you to be innocent. I want you to be like that, wise and innocent. Philippians 2 says, doing all things without grumbling, without complaining. Prove yourselves blameless, 
innocent, shining as lights in the world. And then lastly, he said to them, he blew upon them and said, receive the Spirit. I don't think that that was actually an event in their lives, as it were, as though something happened to them then, and then something more happened to them on the day of Pentecost. I think it's very similar to John 7, when he said, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. Uh, the Spirit is available, but actually not yet. And I think on this occasion, when he says, now receive the Spirit, Thomas is not there. Uh, afterwards, they're unchanged, they're still hidden. There's no outpouring of power, there's no... Uh, evident transformation in their lives. I believe it's a kind of prophetic word. When the Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, receive the Spirit. When the Spirit comes, be energized by Him, for we will never get done the work God wants us to do without that receiving of power from on high. The wind blows where He wills. And I believe God wants us more and more to be sensitive to His energy, drawing on his power, sensing when he's at work, being more and more conscious that we are absolutely dependent on a power other than our own, that we are, like Jesus was, empowered from on high, led by the Spirit, constantly led supernaturally. We find that happens in the book of Acts, not only the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, but the guidance of the Spirit. Come over to Macedonia, come here, come there led by God, letting God make the choices by his personal involvement, the influence of the Spirit that was continually there. God wants us more and more to be touched by his presence. I was telling the guys in the seminar yesterday that I'm very struck recently just reading again a book that's actually new to me called The Search for the Radical Middle, or The Quest for the Radical Middle by a guy called Bill Jackson, writing about John Wimber's ministry, actually. And I found it fascinating to read those early years when God suddenly came to him. And I didn't realize the statistical, numerical breakthrough of conversions, phenomenal number of churches being planted, an amazing breakthrough. And it was really when the Holy Spirit came upon them, everything got transformed. And I was just pondering that. And as I've been reading the book, for I, I was speaking at a conference in California two or three weeks ago, and one of the other speakers was the guy who wrote the book. And he was recounting those days as well. And just thinking, I wonder, Lord, have we still stayed as open to the coming upon, the moving of the Spirit? Are we sufficiently opening to this breath that comes? Jesus blew and received the Spirit. Be open to his phenomenal empowering. When he moves, things happen. When he comes, phenomenal breakthrough takes place. And as I've been pondering that and wondering about that, strangely enough, uh, even yesterday, in the middle of the night, I had, a, I had a, a text from John Wright, who leads the largest vineyard in the UK. And in, in the text was a photograph of me standing with John Wimber and David Pitcher's on the first visit that Wimber ever uh, came to Brighton. And I just said, I thought this was interesting. I thought, wow, Lord, I think you're speaking to me about being more open. I don't want to be a nominal, spirit-filled Christian. I don't want to be someone, yeah, we, okay, so we speak in tongues or something. I long for more evident breakthrough of his presence. 
more conscious awareness that he is the strength that comes and the disproportionate blessing that happens when he steps in, when he moves in, when he imparts power, when he imparts energy, when he just comes and changes everything, changes what we would normally have done. That's the testimony of someone like a D.L. Moody who was already having huge influence in Chicago and then that day came and he says a day I can hardly ever speak of a day when the Spirit came upon D.L. Moody and his ministry just phenomenally changed. He became a global evangelist, saw thousands saved, already effective, but then empowered in a new way. And I'm thinking, Lord Jesus, please, as we see teams going, as we say, Lord, release us out to nation after nation, we need so much to see that empowering, that supernatural element, God himself bearing witness, through various signs and wonders and miracles, which he does. He breaks through. He lifts us to another dimension. He, he adds his divine standing amongst us with phenomenal signs and wonders. And it's been thrilling to meet some of the brothers that Bob's introduced us to that have seen so many extraordinary things happening in their ranks with people being raised from the dead, many miracles happening, because yeah, the Spirit is upon them and they're really enjoying the wonder of his power. And so, beloved, I believe this is the word that God would have for us. As the Father sent me, though it's so sublime, the actual incarnation, God becoming flesh, as the Father sent me, the light of the world, so I'm sending you. I'm sending you as sheep among wolves. I don't know if we think of it like that. We're going to take this town for Jesus. We sing some crazy songs sometimes. Paul says, no, we're just lambs being offered up all the time. If you read 2 Corinthians 6, you just see a list of things. No, this is it. We're just going into difficulty, into pressure, into hardship. You think, well, this is crazy. How, why do you send sheep to be missionaries to wolf world? It's lunatic. And then God said, no, here's the secret. Just keep on my wisdom. Be wise. Draw on my wisdom. Don't draw on other wisdoms. We need to be very diligent about that as we press forward. I want your wisdom. I want to, I want to submit myself. I want to be like Jesus said. He, he said, here's these words, and does them will be a wise man. The fool has said in his heart there's no God. The wise man honors truth. He, he respects truth, even when it seems strange, even when it is. Yeah, take 300 guys into this battle. Even when it is, yeah, dance, walk around this wall. This, this is a wisdom that's other than what we would think of. It's a wisdom that comes from God that breaks out his power in wolf country. Brings in another dimension. The wisdom of God. We've seen it happen. You look back through church history. You look at people like Hudson Taylor who went to China. You read their stories. They look like lambs and sheep in the midst of wolves. Then you look at their history. Then you look at what happened. Then you look at the thousands, the millions that became believers. You see this marching kingdom. But you read their stories. You see the pain, the difficulty, the setback, the heartache, the loss of family. They kept marching on. They kept drawing on divine wisdom. They kept innocent. You read their stories, such innocence, such beauty. The personal testimony of some of these wonderful people who laid down their lives. That, that glorious innocence. It's not that one day someone will lift the lids up, but look what was underneath. I don't want anybody to say that of us. Well, if you look underneath... I want people to say that wherever you look, no, there's innocence there. 
maybe there's naivety, but there's innocence. I'd rather be naive and innocent. I'd rather know the smile of God. I'd rather know the Holy Spirit on us. I'd rather know the energy that only God can give. And this precarious position of being sent as lambs to wolf country. And God making the promise, no, no, no. Saying to Paul, Paul, I've got many people here. I've often thought afterwards when Paul took courage from God to go into Corinth, when God said, I've got many people in Corinth, uh, Paul, they're going to be a total pain in the neck to you. No, I have many people <laughs> in Corinth. They will chew you up, spit you out. You'll have to write terrible letters to them, which will serve the church for centuries to come, to help them and instruct them. But Paul, you'll be pouring out your life. Paul, have courage. I've got many people in Corinth. Divisive, carnal. God saw them as a prize. He wanted them. He sent his apostle in there. So yes, Lord, we go to Corinth then. And it's not easy. Go to Macedonia. Holy Spirit says. Find yourself beaten up in a prison. Backs bleeding in the Philippian jail. Lambs worshipping, praising. Suddenly the wisdom of God, earthquake, break open. The church gets formed. Europe gets invaded because lambs are obedient. Sheep do what they're told. And wolves have to yield. Wolves find they can't bite suddenly. Because actually, no, no, we're walking in the wisdom of God. We're walking with the innocence of God. We're, we're doing it his way. As the Father sent his lamb, meek and lowly, doesn't shout in the street. Broken reed, he mends. Smoking flax, he doesn't snuff out. I'm meek and lowly of heart. Come to me, you'll find rest. In the midst of all these wolves, come to me. You'll find rest for your soul. I'm bringing another culture, another kingdom. It's heaven on earth. It's another value system altogether. It's not us doing our professional thing. It's not us imposing our colonial will. It's not us trying to bully the nations. It's us going as lambs who love his wisdom, who really believe his wisdom, who trust him with doing acts of faith and trust and mercy and kindness, full of vulnerability, bringing in a kingdom thoroughly foreign to a world that was lied to. Eat this, you'll be wise. No, if you eat this, you get cut off from life. Ignorant because of you're no longer in touch with God. Just yielded to all kinds of sad, sad things. We're coming the light of the world. As the Father sent him, he's sending us. God's going to send us. He is sending us more and more. There'll be tough, tough times because we're only lambs. But we've got this God of breathtaking wisdom ordering our steps, guiding us. You've got this God who said, I just want you innocent. Just be innocent in your obedience, in your trust, in your ways. Don't cut corners, don't cheat. Trust me, don't cheat. Go my way and I'll be on you powerfully for my great glory. And my kingdom will be consistent with my style. I don't want God to ever feel, I've got to back off from New Frontiers or all the different titles we call ourselves as we press forward. I, can't, I don't feel at home with them anymore. I, I feel there's a lack of innocence. They're getting very sophisticated, they're getting... No, I, want, I feel God wants that innocence. God wants that desire to draw on his wisdom so he can keep breathing his spirit 
upon us, like that dove, that gentle dove that came down upon the Lord Jesus, on that innocent one. God wants that for us. Let's stand to pray. Perhaps Simon could come up with a band, please. Father, we are amazed that the Lord Jesus would use these words. Lord Jesus, we, we are staggered when we consider your humbling yourself. The beauty of heaven on earth. Well, we, we don't know how full an earth is. We don't know how wicked it is. We have all kinds of ideas. But Lord, we realize you said the world is blind and ignorant. Jesus, we thank you that you came with purity, with innocence. We thank you for your lamb-like qualities. We find them so attractive. We thank you, Lord, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. And John looked and saw a little lamb standing on the throne as one dead. Jesus, we thank you so much. We're amazed, Lord, that you won the victory by laying down your life. We're amazed that you won the victory by refusing to act independently. And Father, I pray tonight in Jesus' name that you will help us to embrace this commission that you send us. As the Father sent you, as a lamb among wolves, grant us, God, I do pray, to be wise truly wise, not just accumulating information. We know knowledge puffs up. Be wise doing the will of God. Help us to be innocent, that you might manifest your very presence amongst us, we pray. And fill us with your spirit. Help us to feel the sail filled, driving us along. Power that suddenly transforms things. The breakout of the rule of God. Coming from the throne, establishing your reign in and through us, we pray. Fulfill these things for your glory, we do ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much.